Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuhu. Peace and blessings to all our listeners. <coughs> Welcome to the Voice of Islam. It is Sunday, the 16th of July, 2023. The time now is coming up to 10.05. This is the Weekend World Show with Hassan Ahmadi. Listen to Voice of Islam on DAB Radio, mobile and online 24 hours a day, broadcasting live from the Bethel Fethu Mosque in Morden. The Weekend World Show is a current affairs show with the week's news, views and reviews from a faith and non-faith perspective, promoting the message of peace and unity, discussing religion, politics, sports and topics of faith and spirituality. A message of Islam for the West. Join us and share us with your views and stories by phoning us on 0208 687 7878 or you can tweet us at Voice of Islam UK. The views on the Weekend World Show are those of the individuals and guests and not necessarily of the Muslim community. My co-host for the show, as always, is Walid Ahmed, the Chief Librarian at the Bethel Fatou Mosque here in Morden. Good morning and assalamu alaikum, Walid. Peace and blessings to you. Very nice day to be doing this show. It is. Uh, sunshine. Uh, after mm. the winds and the rains mm. of the past few days, particularly yesterday, very blistery, but beautiful day outside, <coughs> getting warmer day, uh, by the hour. Uh, but is it getting warmer around the world? Um, That's a worry, ha- isn't it? It is. Uh, mm. Harry Truman, the American president from 45 to 53, he said, if you do not abolish war on this earth then surely one day the war will abolish us from the earth. Mm. Strong words and uh, very right, I think. My struggle is that nations are struggling to maintain peace around the world and seem to be more destructive, uh, selling arms. The arms trade is Mm. keeping that alive. Um, and it's those nations that have the might, you could say, who are promoting this. There's no intention of peace in the world. Am I right or am I wrong? Yes, when you say nations, it's only some nations. And uh, unfortunately, I would group, I would class our nation as uh, among them mm. that uh, uh, seem to be uh, adopting a more confrontational line. I wouldn't uh, uh, consider China in that book. Um, China hasn't invaded any any other country. It hasn't, there. but they can be provoking. Uh, they can be, right? Um, so <clears throat> uh, there are other nations that I feel have a different approach to how to proceed uh, in the future. Mm. But I think we have a more confrontational policy. And part of the reason, and this is something that has been alluded to by certain congressman as well, is uh, because of the military-industrial complex Mm. that exists in the United States, which wants conflict, Mm. uh, but uh, controlled conflict. Right. Uh, So conflict... On their terms. uh, On their terms, so that uh, uh, the arms industry Mm. uh, continues to grow, continues to bring uh, uh, money in. Uh, And that money is then uh, given to congressmen to fuel policies that are uh, confrontational and that need and require armaments. So uh, the danger is that uh, although this is supposed to be controlled uh, conflict, it can, uh, if uh, one uh, miscalculates, then it can get out of hand. And 
the uh, uh, means of destruction that uh, Harry Truman, or it is saying very much about uh, his concern about the survival of the Earth, but he's the one who mm. who uh, unleashed the um, atomic bomb, many say unnecessarily. Unnecessarily, uh, uh, Twice. <coughs> and, uh, and we suffer the ramifications yes. of that even to, to, yeah. to, to, to yeah. this day. Indeed, you're very right. Mm. And uh, so... Um, contradictory yes. or and hypocrisy yes. probably is the better word and also i think that the other the other aspect of this is um, that um, even nations that have a lot mm. are trying to use unjust means in in order to get more mm. and that is also something that is very sad and that's something um, that uh, zelensky has been criticized by even by the West, who are supplying him with all the arms. Okay, we're not, Amazon. We're not Amazon. No, no, we're not Amazon. No, that's right, as mm. Ben Wallace certainly said. Yes. Um, but we'll, we'll be discussing that, actually, mm. with, the, with, our, uh, with our, one of our guests. Yeah. Uh, and who is that guest? Because he'll be first up. Oh, well, uh, Dr. Freed will be uh, first up to discuss the uh, week's latest news. Uh, that's with the news, news review. review. And uh, that'll be one of the topics we'll yeah. discuss with them. What have we got after that? Well, have faith in focus, and uh, we'll, uh, we are looking at the uh, life of the founder of the Amdim Committee, the promised Messiah, Zamizah Ghulam Ahmed. And we will uh, take a particular look this time at his personal life and family life. Indeed. And after the 11 o'clock news? We'll be joined by Sheikh Rahman to uh, talk about the political and religious situation in Pakistan. It seems the Pakistani politicians have no care for the nation standing in the world, no care for the people. And the clerics running riot, despite the fact the nation was built on Islamic principles. Indeed, we'll discuss some of those details with Sheikh Rahman when he comes on later in the show. Uh, what do we have after that? Well, Daniel Kalon uh, will be joining us uh, in the uh, Ask the Imam segment, uh, the right of women, uh, is a topic the West is always intrigued. So uh, we will discuss some of those issues with him. Indeed, I think sometimes the world looks at the issues based on their values and don't appreciate the values of others, and then they become very judgmental. And mm. I think the West certainly has been very critical yeah. of Muslim women yeah. when Muslim women play a, play a key role in society. Absolutely, yes. Yes. Uh, what uh, will Shai be joining us for the sports? Yes, indeed, uh, to discuss uh, a fascinating Ashes uh, series, uh, which uh, could have been all over last week. I don't think it was that close. England had the upper hand. But anyway, Mm. some say it uh, it could have been uh, uh, all over last week. But for the surprise win, again, I I think it it would be surprising if uh, uh, Australia would have won. But anyway. right? Yes, yes, yes. (laughs) Uh, And also with Wimbledon coming to a close uh, this afternoon, we take the views uh, on the old and the new that is uh, reflected in today's final. In very much. The young and the old. 36 mm. versus a 20-year-old, yeah. Mm. Uh, out with the old and in with the new type of mm. thinking. Let's see what Shahid has to say on that. Interesting, thought-provoking show in store for our listeners, I hope. Inshallah. Uh, God willing. Uh, anyone eager to comment or share their views can do so by phoning 208 or they can tweet us at Voice of Islam UK. Voice of Islam on DAB radio, mobile or live stream on voiceofislam.co.uk forward slash live. This is the Weekend World Show with Asan Ambi. The views on the world Weekend World Show are those of the individuals and guests. Right, Walid, we'll start with our first segment of the show, which is the news review. Weekend World. Look at this week's news, views and reviews. 
Right, Valid. Um, the Guardian reports that US and UK call for more gratitude from Kyiv <laughs> after Zelensky's NATO complaint. The, this is what the Guardian said. Britain's Defence Secretary and the US National Security Advisor have suggested Ukraine ought to show more gratitude for the help it has received from the West in response to Vladimir Zelensky's complaints that his country has not been issued a firm timetable or set of conditions for joining NATO. What else do they say? They're unscripted marks uh, at two different events on the margins of the second day of the NATO summit uh, in the Lithuanian capital, Vilnius, appear to prompt a change of tack from the Ukrainian leader on Wednesday, who later said he was grateful to all leaders of NATO countries for their support and help. Mm, bit of... Uh well, backpedaling. Backpedaling there by his legacy, it appears. Pressure being put on it. Mm-hmm. But, uh, ben Wallace, you, you made a comment earlier. The UK Defence Secretary said that whether we like it or not, people want to see a bit of gratitude. When asked about Zelensky's frustration at not being presented with a formal invitation to join NATO, he advised that Ukraine, that it might help it if, uh, if it took a different approach. What did uh, Deborah Haynes report from for Sky News on this topic? Well, she says that UK Defence Secretary Ben Wallace's uh, "We are not Amazon" jibe at the Ukraine uh, at the at Ukraine a real warning about the risk of war fatigue. Ben uh, Wallace had been trying to address an uncomfortable truth about the need for Kiev uh, to keep in mind the political reality in certain nations where support for uh, giving arms and money to fight Russia's invasion is not always universal. Mm. Let's hear very quickly what Jen Stoltenberg, NATO's General Secretary, said after the talks at that summit. Uh, let's hear what he said. This would change Ukraine's membership path from a two-step process to a one-step process. We also made clear that we will issue an invitation for Ukraine to join NATO when allies agree and conditions are met. This is a strong package for Ukraine and a clear path towards its membership in NATO. In its communique too, NATO said Ukraine's future is in NATO. So those were the words of uh, Jan Stoltenberg. Um, joining us this morning, really, as we said, Dr. Mm-hmm. Furi, the regular contributor and commentator on the show, speaking from Farnham in Hampshire. Assalamu alaikum, Dr. Farid. Farnham in Surrey. No, Farnham in Surrey, indeed. Yes, you're right. (laughs) It's Alton that is in Hampshire, but uh, yeah. Um, Dr. Farid, uh, what do you make of NATO's refusal to accept Ukraine as a NATO member at this moment in time? Well, I mean, many prominent uh, policy specialists uh, uh, say that the the expansion of NATO in the early 2000s was actually a provocation to Moscow uh, and the historic importance of Ukraine to Russia is not something we have taken seriously enough. So, in a sense, uh, this uh, question was asked uh, years ago and uh, it may be the the source of what's the the present problem that uh, uh, Russia thought, or truly uh, rightly thought, that the expansion of NATO is a is a threat to them they're having uh, nato right on their <laughs> their borders mm. uh, so so so, so therefore i think the question was asked years ago right and uh, 
uh, NATO continue to expand and provoke Russia, and uh, Russia uh, has a right to defend itself and look to its own future. Uh, I think they had their backs to the wall. Mm-hmm. Whether the the uh, invasion of Ukraine was right or wrong, but uh, there's no doubt, and many commentators uh, say that there's definitely provocation, uh, no no less so than when Russia planted missiles in Cuba. You know, it nearly brought us a third world war. And, so, and, th- and this is yeah. almost like planting missiles at the borders of Russia then, isn't it? Near enough, yes. And uh, so really your question about uh, whether Ukraine should join NATO, mm. I think uh, the the general consensus is no, that uh, we should keep them at arm's length at the moment. That should It's a buffer state, that's fine, mm. leave it as a buffer state, but to bring them fully into NATO uh, would uh, be a confrontation with Russia straight on. And this is what they're trying to avoid, but in, an, in another way, the confrontation has already started, and uh, we are on the really on the edges of a, a full-scale worldwide war. Mm. Uh, as you know, our own, uh, the, Khali- uh, the Khalifa, the Khalifa, uh, Azad Mizdah Masrur, the Supreme Head of the Amdiya Muslim community, yes. Yes. has been saying for over a decade that uh, the, the Third World War has already started, and mm-hmm. then we are, we are heading towards a nuclear conflagration. So, conflagration, so it's, it's, the warnings have been there for uh, years and years, and we seem to be walking blindly further into, you know, or the the the, <coughs> the leaders at beat seem to be walking blindly they into. Seem, uh, yeah, they seem to be bl- walking blindly, as you put it, but but by fueling uh, this uh, urge to k- uh, keep world at war, because the arms sales seems to be behind it all as uh, as because without the arms sales there's the, the, these nations these mighty nations who have these uh, powerful uh, weapons yes. uh, will will suffer oh, yes, the arms, during wars the wars the arms manufacturers always uh, um, uh, benefit greatly and the governments also do and we i'm not an arms expert and i'm not uh, in is not uh, too 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 much uh, aware of the of the field behind it, mm. but obviously uh, during wars the arms makers may make a lot of money and then obviously it's got to be repaid. Right. Uh, I mean, in general, if you're looking at the United States, uh, the doubts uh, for U.S. military assistance are, are steadily reducing and are increasing. Mm. Uh, I've read somewhere that uh, uh, the the uh, Political support for Ukraine among the American public is a mile wide and an inch thick. Yeah. Yeah. Only, and even among the Republicans, there's waning enthusiasm. Right. Uh, 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 reading an article in the Times by Gerald Baker, he says in May last year, 19% thought the USA was doing too much. All right. That number is now 44%. Oh. Three times as many. You yeah, see? yeah. Um, and uh, uh, so they're asking, you know, why should my tax dollars be used for 
defending a country which well, is miles away from us. When a nation is struggling economically, then uh, these sort of things are raised the question. And America has suffered uh, anti-war sentiments when, when Vietnam was in rife and certainly after Iraq as well. So the West is not learning. But in terms of uh, the, 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 the sort of comments that are being made, you know, Ben Wallace saying, you know, this is not Amazon where you keep buying weapons willy-nilly uh, as you wish and we keep supplying it. Is it, Are the West um, sort of being strained uh, with, with, with Ukraine? Are they sort of struggling now? Hence, these sort of comments are being made. I think both, both sides have underestimated each other. Uh, Russia underestimated the... Uh uh, the the strength of uh, of Ukraine or the resilience of Ukraine. They mm. thought they could just march in. Uh, the the U.S. and the, the NATO just thought that uh, they would just re- rebut re- rebuff it, and and then they they go on a counteroffensive and retrieve the lost territory. Uh, they don't realize uh, Russia is still a very very mighty power. Mm. Uh, it has great reserves of. Uh, of munitions, it has great manufacturing capacity, it has uh, unlimited reserves of fuel and gas for a war. You need uh, energy reserves, which uh, they've got unlimited uh, uh, capacity. Even more and now, it, even more yeah. now that the West is not, uh, not, not buying, taking, it, yes. buying, buying their gas. Yes, yes. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, so, uh, and, uh, and also the, the alliance against Russia is, is not united. Europe is not united against Russia. Hungary is not against uh, is not uh, aligned with uh, with the UA, with NATO or with uh, with Europe nor nor is uh, Siberia for example mm. so there's a lot of countries uh, some european countries are supporting russia india supports is buying oil from russia yeah. pakistan is buying gas from russia well every nation has to look after their own yeah, interests yeah. and uh, yeah. the western uh, alliance does not necessarily mean good for everyone else yeah uh, it's it, 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 the 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 only solution is to come to some sort of settlement uh, by sitting uh, together on a table and are, discuss. Yes. Are, are there voices about coming to a settlement? Are there any voices around the world who are talking about peace and solutions to what can be done to resolve this situation? Because at the moment it seems like a stalemate. Well, there's there's some talk. I mean, Zelensky doesn't uh, want to budge at all. He he doesn't want to discuss uh, peace, and he thinks uh, America and the West will support him uh, till the end. But uh, I think he's mistaken in that uh, belief. Uh, from religious leaders, as I've already said, uh, uh, our Khalifa, Hazrat Mirza Masrur Ahmad, has uh, spoken on this sub- subject. And uh, one of the points he's made is that uh, you don't humiliate an enemy. Mm. Uh, the, the, at the moment, the whole talk is about uh, bringing Russia to its knees, and uh, uh, the neocons in the in the U.S. still have that sort of strategy and that mind mind thought uh, that uh, Russia uh, should be completely uh, humiliated and subdued. And yes, yeah, and yeah. Uh, and our other Mizamasur Ahmad, may Allah be his helper, said that this is not the way. To, to deal with these sort of situations. And in, in recently in his Friday sermon, we've been talking about the discussing the Battle of Badr. And uh, only this uh, uh, the last Friday sermon, he mentioned that when the prisoners, uh, the, how the prisoners were dealt with after the Battle of Badr, was the uh, Battle of Badr, mm. that uh, he 
there were two, two, uh, two opinions. One was that they should be killed and one was uh, that they should be freed on ransom. And he agreed with uh, Hazrat Abu Bakr who said that, uh, uh, who, who proposed that they, they should be freed on ransom. And the idea was that you should be reconciliate, mm-hmm. go for reconciliation, go for forgiveness. And uh, this is basically <coughs> Islamic teaching. Very Don't humiliate the enemy. Indeed. And that, uh, that, I presume, is what is needed in this moment in time, else this war will continue. And the people around the world will continue to suffer because it has already caused a lot of suffering. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, this is, uh, it's... Uh, all wars cause suffering, mm. and uh, as you and we go back to where you one of your uh, earlier questions was about the arms manufacturers. They are the ones who mint <laughs> who yeah. mint the money, and uh, there are a lot of vested interests which we don't know about. Hidden mm. people behind the scenes who are quite happy for the war to carry on and for them to be making money. I mean, their arms manufacturers uh, are on a high. But fr- from the the UK point of view, I think what we, we you mentioned Ben Wallace and. Uh, his comments. Uh, mm. I mean, he's concerned that the UK itself is has diminished uh, uh, the, the army, the resources, and mm. the army has diminished, and all these cutbacks, and basically was sending them second-hand equipment, and that's all gone. Mm. And you know, all, all most equipment is passed is sell by date. Yes, that's what we send to the third world countries. Uh, but uh, there's an Hardly, uh, there's not enough money. I think he got uh, 10 billion pounds increase in the last budget for uh, for new equipment, and uh, he's not going to get much change out of that. Uh, yes, yeah, yeah, absolutely. And he, and he's worried that uh, uh, if if war, I think he's saying that uh, we may be at war with China by 2030, or and we won't be able to fight them. Mm. If, if it comes to that, yes. Yes, I'm sure that that's the next target, China. <laughs> uh, <laughs> for, for anyway, there are lots more to discuss on this story, but we must move on. Uh, there's another story uh, uh, reported in Algeria, Algeria sorry, uh, uh, and many other press agencies. Uh, Chandrayaan 3, India launches three, uh, so, sorry, India launches rocket to land spacecraft on the moon. India's space agency has launched a rocket that will attempt to land a spacecraft on the lunar south pole, an unprecedented feat that would uh, would advance India's position as a major power. Believe what else do they say? Well, they say that television footage on Friday showed the Indian Space Research Organization, ISRO, was shot, uh, launched uh, uh, um, lock- rocket blast off from the country's main spaceport at uh, Siri Hakorta in the southern state of uh, Andhra Pradesh, leaving behind a plume of smoke and fire. Mm, I'm sure that was not going to do much <laughs> good for for the uh, c- climate warming issues no. that are raised. Uh, applause and cheers swept through mission control at Satish Dhawan Space Center, while thousands of Indians cheered outside the mission control center and waved the national flag as they watched the craft rise into the sky. Uh, Dr. Fried, great feed by the Indians. Only USA, Russia, China have done this successfully before. Is this a sign of India's rise to being a superpower? Well, India is, is a great power in itself. Uh, it's always been a, a, a major power, mm. you know, one of the largest populations in the world. I mean, we also, uh, in a sense, hail from India. Mm. So uh, this uh, space venture must be lauded. It's unfortunate that the subcontinent uh, 
is divided uh, uh, politically and re- religiously. It was always there was a divide, but the fact that uh, the Pakistan and India and uh, even say Bangladesh could not become uni- united and become one, you know, it, one strong power. Mm. Uh, it if uh, that was the case, it would be it would uh, rival Russia, U.S. and, and Europe. In its, in its own way. I mean, uh, India on its own, I think, has done considerably. But uh, you would imagine that if uh, Pakistan and India and Bangladesh and I suppose even Sri Lanka were in United, mm-hmm. what a major power we could become. Mm. Uh, and, pa- uh, Pakistan's yes. current position would probably drag that down a bit, but I'm sure in the part have they United. Yeah, but United, they, yeah. Have they but United we, we, we have the talent, we, we have the resources. We, Indeed. It's, uh, it's all uh, the... the uh, the, the the politics has all gone wrong and uh, mm. the uh, it's a tragedy put it that way and mm. so therefore this uh, the, this Indian uh, space venture must be lauded mm. um, uh, and it's, it's the, I think uh, it's this force uh, uh, it's their force attempt fourth time they've gone to the moon I mean before I think they sent uh, the first uh, the first mission I think was in 2008 and uh, they just sent a, a, a lunar craft to go around the moon and just uh, take uh, readings and uh, I think they established that the moon has an atmosphere during daytime that was called uh, the, that lunar mm. uh, module was called uh, <coughs> lunar rocket I think it was called Chandrayaan 1 right. and then 2019 they sent uh, uh, Chandrayaan 2 but that was uh, and they, they, the idea was to land put a lander and then a rover on it but unfortunately that crashed oh, okay. so that uh, so that was not successful and th- uh, these sort of things happen, don't they? And, and, and yeah, of course. Uh, yeah, it's not easy. These are, no. you know, yeah, technically. Uh, I mean, the thing is, it's when you say uh, it's a great advance. Remember also that the, the, the advantage is in in a technology and in computer IT. India is, India is now leading. Is, is, is leading, is leader, yes. But uh, a, but in a way, it's uh, although it's uh, it's difficult. It's still relatively easier because you're working on the the basis of what's gone before you've got all the knowledge mm. beforehand and it's not so everything all the knowledge is there all the know-how is there uh, how to build these uh, these, these uh, uh, vehicles uh, is, is is all there and also the uh, the, uh, the, uh, the computer technology uh, when apollo 11 went to the moon, I think the computer technology was, you know, they only had four megabytes or something on that computer. So, so, so imagine what they have. What, what capabilities they've got now. Com- yeah, yeah. But all, all that, having said all that, and, and you're absolutely right about that, that uh, you, you've got to have the know-how, the technology, and India yeah. is certainly a leader in that, uh, one of the leading yeah. nations in that regard. But all this requires a lot of money, and yet, India is one of the has the largest popula- one of the largest populations of people in poverty and deprivation. Uh, so how do you account for that? How do, how does India justify take, undertaking these projects when really they should be looking at the needs of the people? Yeah, ethical moral question. Uh, apparently, I mean they're still saying it's it's, uh, it's relatively cheaper than any of the other uh, the countries uh, which have sent missions to the moon. I think this is about. 75 million dollars or 60 million pounds or something like that to that effect mm-hmm. uh, still a lot of money uh, the ethics uh, uh, I would say spending money on space exploration uh, in any country of the world what would you spend millions and billions which America did with Russia did 
on space exploration. Uh, many, many years ago, I asked uh, uh, our Khalifa at the time, Hazrat Mirza Tahir Ahmed, the fourth Khalifa of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, about this, and uh, I asked him whether uh, what he thought about you know, all the money being spent and all, whether this was just a waste or uh, this was unethical. And his reply was that uh, everything which is in search of knowledge is beneficial uh, beneficial to mankind. Any quest which is goes in that sort of direction. So mm-hmm. his answer was basically that if it benefits mankind and there there hidden benefits to it. I mean I don't remember the exact exact wording, but uh, he was not against uh, these major what you would say outlandish projects. Yeah. Uh, the, that some of these projects eventually benefit mankind. They, uh, whether they, f- they they filtered well, how they filter down mm. to the common public, to those who are needy. Uh, for example, satellites. Yes. Are, the, the satellites uh, cost millions. They go up, they go up, and they uh, go up into orbit. They look down, and they are the ones who inform us what's happening in Darfur, what's happening in Ethiopia. Uh, they give pictures of droughts. But then, once you have that information, then you have to act on it. So it's not only enough to have a picture of what's happening, but to act on it, and that's where the uh, the, the that's the, where we slip up, or Indeed. the world slips up. And Indeed. so, so I think the the benefits is yes, you identify something that you've got a satellite, it tells you of a tsunami, or tells you some uh, uh, phenomena which is uh, we wouldn't be aware of. It tells you about the, the, all the weather patterns. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, the, the weather patterns which are this occurring all, now. This is all, all through the research of yeah. the... Uh, uh, yeah, so it's all millions and billions of pounds. It benefits people to to a degree, mm. but then it doesn't filter down to those who are really needy. And as you say, yes, India is among the people, the people, the country which has the largest... Uh, uh, amount of poverty yeah, in a, the world a state and that always sort of remains with India yeah. over this situation who do you blame you don't blame the space program you no. they've got enough money to to hand out to to make uh, beneficial projects to benefit yeah. those who need uh, and so has the the world at large how much food is wasted every day in our in our own in, in the, the uk that's the wider the topic obviously the wider topic, yeah, yeah, exactly absolutely. so when you uh, so yeah. so your basic question yes space exploration whether india does it or anyone else does it mm. in the interest of gaining knowledge is uh, is to be uh, praised but in the interest of military technology then you, there's a question question. Indeed. I mean, yeah. this again, a long topic that we can have, but yes. we need to move on with a very quick story. Tribute to Bristol MP Doug Naismith, who has died. We normally don't do obituaries, but uh, Doug Naismith, uh, why is uh, his uh, death important to note, Dr. Fried? Uh, yes, I mean, yeah, it's, it's People who sometimes leave a lasting influence on society, you don't really mm. know much about them until after they passed away. Unfortunately, uh, uh, I just read his uh, obituary in the Times. He died on July the 2nd, his Labour MP for Bristol. Um, but uh, one of his lasting uh, uh, so legacies is that uh, he fought for the banning of uh, smoking in public places oh. in 2007. Yeah. Major social uh, change in society. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And a major contribution to patients' health. Uh, yeah. And uh, um, 
uh, also read that in fact the, the, it was in the the Liberal Democrats had already in their manifesto, manifesto three years earlier, before uh, he the, uh, he he uh, uh, fought for it in the in in, in Parliament. Right. Uh, so this was instituted in 2007, and it has made uh, a massive uh, uh, the effects of the smoking ban. Uh, I, was, I was reading that. Uh, his uh, contribution. Uh, I mean, he understood the, you know the passive smoking was yes. was uh, understood to be a great danger to person's health, mm. etc. And uh, it says that uh, from the <coughs> British Health Foundation that uh, uh, I mean, I'm just sort of looking at my notes again. But basically, the not not only what one of the uh, the. The reservations was that if people aren't allowed to smoke in the restaurant or in the pubs, they'll go home and smoke, and then they'll put their children at risk. But what happened? What's actually happened that people just started to stop stop smoking? Yes, they um, didn't go and uh, smoke. Or, at or home. if they smoked, they smoked in, yeah. out in the air rather than inside. Yes. In fact, so, people don't smoke in cars. They don't smoke in in, in their homes anymore, uh, as people used to. Yeah, and a reduction in uh, heart attacks, reduction in asthma, reduction, uh, improvement in air quality, mm. all these things. Uh, so the amount of lives he's affected and he's saved, mm. uh, saved by this uh, uh, parliament uh, the law uh, has, has been tremendous. So Indeed. he must be remembered and lauded. Well, thank, um, thank you for yep. bringing us to our attention and... Uh, May uh, our condolences to his family and uh, thank you very much for uh, his contribution to our social, the way we live our social lives now because we don't have to suffer smelly clothes <laughs> as we used yes. to in trains and cars yeah. and homes, etc. Uh, Dr. Fried, thank you very much. Jazakallah for okay, your contributions and uh, thank you for bringing this to attention. Uh, some interesting topics there, believe. Hmm. Uh, right, Jazakallah. we're moving Jazakallah. on to Jazakallah. Jazakallah. Islam, Dr. Fried. Uh, coming on to our next topic, Willie, uh, Faith in Focus. Mm -hmm. uh, we've been reviewing the life of the promised Messiah in early episodes. We will continue to do so, as, as we said at the beginning of the show, to <coughs> examine some of his other qualities. Let's begin with uh, considering his behavior at home. What was he like? What was his character? What was his demeanor at home mm. with his family? Because it's important to know this because mm. when people look at a spiritual leader, they look at all aspects. And yeah. I think home life is one, one of those that we mm. need to look at. What was his life like at home? So the impression that we get from those who were able to observe him is uh, that he was very much absorbed in his work. But at the same time, when it, there was time for relaxation, uh, he would spend time with his family. And uh, <clears throat> it's also said that uh, uh, people who observed him, and we used to describe him uh, as uh, someone who conducted himself like mm. an angel. Uh, he would not con uh, criticize or taunt anyone. Uh, he would oblige to the requests of anyone as if, you know, uh, they were they were instructions from a higher authority. So he didn't have any airs and graces about him. Um, observer says that his uh, behavior towards his family and children was one of extreme kindness, and he was an epitome of that saying of the Holy Prophet, uh, peace be upon him, where he said, Kherakum, Kherakum ahlihi, meaning the best of you is the one who is uh, uh, who treats his family the best. 
And uh, another quote from one of the observers was that Mizar Sahib does often the will of his wife. He does his wife's <laughs> bidding, in other words, something that you and I uh, are trying to <laughs> trying to do. Probably get accused of. <laughs> yes. And when he was told by an uh, apparent uh, well-wisher uh, that he should be more strict with his wife, uh, the promised Messiah disapproved. He said that uh, with the exception of indecency ought to bear the, with patience all the other improprieties and discourteous behaviors of your wives. Mm. And on another occasion, he is reported to said, I find it utterly shameful for a man to be in a state of conflict with a woman. Uh, we should treat women with kindness and tenderness. And uh, um, when one... Uh, on one occasion, there was mention of a certain individual's rough nature and abusive language and that he was harsh in the treatment of his wife. Uh, he was upset and uh, he said that this does not behove of a friend. So this is not the way that he expects believers uh, to, uh, to, believe, uh, to conduct themselves. Mm. There was also the incident where um, he uh, uh, told uh, another an individual who was a bit, uh, who handled his uh, wife, uh, his treatment of his wife was rough, that he uh, called him and uh, told him to change his ways because this is not the way that uh, we should behave towards mm. those who it are... It reminds me of the wonderful hadith of the Holy Prophet where he said that a woman has been created like a rib. Mm. Uh, it has a, it has a form and a shape. Mm. And if you try to straighten it, it will snap. Yeah, uh, yeah. So be gentle. Uh, be gentle, mm, right? Do not mm. try to impose your values mm. on, on, on your wives or mm. your women. Mm. Uh, let them be as they are. Th- those are the qualities God has ordained on them. And yeah. that is basically what the province was like. Yes. And he very much lived the life or the examples led by the Holy Prophet himself. Oh, very much so. Very, very much yeah. What about his uh, attitude to uh, his children, for example? What was that okay. like? Right, so uh, again, uh, very loving, uh, one that showed immense patience as well. Uh, and he was opposed, when you uh, look through his life, he was opposed to the beating and rebuking of children. I say that because uh, we are living, uh, the, the promised Messiah was li- living in the 19th, 19th century, early 20th century. And in those in those days, beating children was something that was an accepted norm. We've experienced it, have we not? From school days, particularly. <laughs> oh dear, you bring back uh, uh, painful memories. Nightmares. <laughs> yeah. Indeed. Oh dear, right, okay. Uh, so I'll try and embrace myself now. Yes. <laughs> All right, and, um, but uh, the promised Messiah was opposed uh, to, to the beating and rebuking of children. And no matter how troublesome and naughty they were, and how oppressing uh, their uh, unreasonable demands may be. Um, he uh, was always one who would uh, treat them gently. And um, uh, he never uh, beat them or scolded them or showed any sign of anger. So this is uh, a testimony from an observer. And it appeared that when nothing annoyed him, uh, that nothing annoyed him more than to hear that someone had beaten his child, and when it was brought to his notice that a particular gentleman beat his child, uh, children regularly as a matter of habit, he was greatly disturbed. He sent for him and explained to him in moving terms uh, the errors of his ways. Um, and again, I must stress that this is, you know, we're talking about 19th century. I do remember reading about uh, the conduct of uh, certain personnel in, in the Salvation Army who also took on children. They thought that beating children 
on occasion was a good thing. It was good for their uh, for their upbringing, mm. and it was necessary to beat children, beat children. for no reason, but right. just to beat them. Yeah. Uh, so this was uh, what was current in the West uh, at that time. It was current up till even the sixties and. Mm. Yes. Know, 70, 60, but 60 certainly. certainly, yeah. I mean, at school we were beaten by our teachers you mm. know, quite regularly. Yeah. <laughs> and scoldings from parents was was very common. Yes, yes. Um, anyway, mm. um, so the the holy the, the promised Messiah refrained from all that. Yes. In fact, actually stopped people from doing mm. it. It's the law in the country now. So yes. the promised Messiah was yes. well advanced. Oh, ahead of his time. Yes. What about children? They they can be very mischievous, uh, yeah. running around the house creating all sorts of havoc, mm. especially during school holidays, as we know yeah. what children are like. Um, what was the promised Messiah's attitude towards children when he was working and being distracted by children, for example? Well, um, he was able to rise above this all when there was commotion and what you describe as running around. Uh, I, I just wanted to add that the promised Messiah spent a lot of time in his study room, in his seizures, in, in his writings, etc. Mm. So all his time was occupied, mm. much of his time was occupied mm. in that. So being disturbed was not going to be helpful to him. No. So we have this uh, uh, account by Mawli Abdul Karim, who actually lived in the same property as the promised, uh, promised Messiah, but on a different floor. He said, and I quote, you know, he says that I've seen hundreds of times that while he's sitting in his room in the second story with doors closed, as is the habit with him, engaged in writing a book or engrossed in meditation, one of his children knocks heavily at the door saying, Abba, open the door. Immediately he rises and opens the door. The child enters the room, looks around for a while and then leaves. The promised Messiah again closes the door as usual, but before two minutes have passed, the child is again at the door, pushing it with all his might and crying as before, Abba, open the door. Again, uh, the promised Messiah quietly rises and opens the door. This time, uh, again, the child withdraws after only peeping into the room once or twice. Again, the promised Messiah stands up with not uh, a wrinkle or a frown on his face, shuts the door and once again resumes his work. But before five minutes have passed, the child is again at the door, crying at the top of his voice, Abba, open the door. Again, the promised Messiah quietly rises and opens the door. He does not say a word as to why he comes or why, uh, what the child wants and what the purpose he has in coming so often and why he troubles him in, in this way and interferes with his work. Once I was sitting in my own room upstairs, counted this process being repeated 20 times, but not once did the promised Messiah utter a word of rebuke. So this shows the extent of patience and forbearance uh, that the uh, promised Messiah had. Mm. And this ob observer goes on to say, I've seen the promised Messiah engaged in writing on difficult subjects and even composing Arabic works of unparalleled linguistic elegance in the midst of a great tumult and uproar. Reckless children and simple-minded female servants are quarreling, quarreling all around him, screeching and screaming. But all this fails to disturb him in the least, and he goes on writing as if he was sitting in a place of solitude. It is in such noisy rooms that all his great and unparalleled works in Persian, in Arabic, uh, were actually composed. I once asked him how he's able to think and write so calmly in the midst of the, such noisy smile, and said, I do not heed what is going on around me, therefore I am not disturbed. Mm. Great, great qualities. Mm. Uh, I think 
I dare not say what I would how yes. I would react yes. if if uh, whenever my children have, would have disturbed me in such situations, mm. and 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 many a time that has happened. Mm. What about uh, attitude to other children, uh, or, or, or more examples of his attitude to the children's mm. you know, distractions? I would say. Well, he took care of his own children's upbringing through prayer and uh, through his own example. And uh, once in the winter season, Mia Mahmood, one of his uh, children, who was then only a child, put a piece of stone in the pocket of the waistcoat of uh, the promised Messiah so that whenever he lay down on his side, it poked and uh, disturbed him. Uh, He mentioned to his servant that uh, of late he had been feeling some pain in his ribs. In an attempt to check this, the servant passed his hand over the area uh, only to discover the uh, bits and pieces uh, that uh, his children had left in his pockets, and he took it out and took them out. The promised Messiah smiled and said, "Now I remember, Mahmud uh, put this in my pocket and asked me not to take it out, for he would play with it later." Uh, and uh, the promised Messiah asked that it should be left there, uh, where it was in his pockets, uh, so that uh, when Mahmud comes back again, he can claim it back. And um, an observer says that I've, I've often seen his own and other children, not just his children, but other children uh, as well, sitting on the same couch with him, compelling him to gradually move to the end of the couch and reciting to him in their childish stories tales of frogs and crows and sparrows. He would listen to them with apparent delight as if they were reciting to him some of the lines from the mystic poems of Molana, Molana Room. So it took a great interest mm. in children uh, and in what they were saying. <clears throat> and what about his forbearance and kindness extended to others, especially those who were of simple mind and normally shunned by others? In yes, so, you know, he, he had compassion and sensitivity for everyone, even those people who are neglected normally because they are uh, not so clever, they are perhaps simple-minded. And uh, there are incidents relating to uh, that as well. And once in the hot summer season after sunset prayers, it is said, the promised Messiah was taken very ill. People were attending to him all around. And a certain servant by the name of Pira uh, heard of uh, his illness and he came running to him. And his feet were covered in mud and rushed, uh, he rushed straight uh, up to him. Uh, someone tried to stop him, but the promised Messiah said, don't stop him. What, he, what does he know about where not to tread with muddy feet? He has come with love, let him come. Another incident, uh, this is related by Hazrat <coughs> Munshi Zafar Ahmad, a companion of the Holy, uh, promised Messiah, and he says, um, and this, this also uh, relates to his humility in dealings with uh, fellow human beings, no matter who or what they are. He states that once the promised Messiah, peace be upon him, was returning from the Aqsa Mosque in Qadian when Miran Baksh, a man of simple and confused mind who suffered from delusions, called out loudly and roughly after him, saying, Ghulam uh, Ahmed, and the promised Messiah, peace be upon him, stopped and replied politely, saying, yes, uh, Miran some, uh, sometimes, as mentioned, suffered from delusions, that he was, uh, he was in fact a king or somebody very superior, and people needed to settle their accounts with him. And addressing the promised Messiah, he said, listen, you should say salam. So the promised Messiah, you know, humored him, he didn't rebuke him, uh, he said, assalamu alaikum. 
And then Miran said, you need to settle your account. So the promised Messiah again uh, went along uh, with him and uh, took a coin from his pocket and gave it to him, which greatly pleased Miran. And he went off singing and uh, was extremely joyous and satisfied. So these kind of people uh, were not shrugged or beaten away by, uh, by the promised Messiah, but humored and dealt with kindness and patience. So these kind of incidents illustrate the humble nature of the promised Messiah. Mm-hmm. Despite his high status, he did not demand any special treatment. He didn't have any airs and graces about him. Uh, and uh, if somebody of uh, a poor intellect is uh, addressing him roughly, he would go along with it. Mm. You know? So as not to hurt their feelings yes. yeah. <coughs> and their approach to him <coughs> as well. Mm. What about, I mean, the, we, when we see someone of, a, of that nature, mm. someone who is not, that, not as astute with his mind mm. and intellect as someone, we would try to put them down a bit or yes. treat or, them or accordingly. Make fun right? of them. Make fun of them, yeah. <coughs> what, about, uh, what about the converse, where mm. you have people of intellect who sometimes feel very proud of what yes. they have, yeah. and they in turn treat others mm. in a disdain way. How did the promised Messiah treat those people, mm. or approach those people who had intellect or intelligence or wealth even? Well, you see, yes. Now, there are two types of uh, intellectuals, one that are uh, sincere and others that are not sincere. And there's this example of Malvi Walam Nabi. He was uh, a very influential scholar, uh, had a considerable following among the Muslims, uh, uh, who delighted uh, with his scholarly knowledge of the Quran and Hadith. So he's a big shot. It was uh, during this period of the uh, promise uh, um, Messiah stay in Uliana, and Molly Ghulam Ali used to bring with him a crowd of people to pitch outside the residence of the Promised Messiah where they would uh, proceed to pour out venom against him. So he was hostile to the Promised Messiah. Intellectual, very knowledgeable, but hostile to the Promised Messiah. And the situation of the residence of the Promised Messiah in Ludhiana was such that there was no uh, through entrance to the men's reception room from the ladies' side. And the Promised Messiah had to approach the men's area externally. So one day it so happened that the promised Messiah was making his way to the men's reception room and Munshi Ghulam Nabi caught a glimpse of his face and this completely transformed his attitude towards him. Prior to this occurrence, he was busy delivering his usual species, arousing the public's animosity against the promised Messiah. Having seen the face of the promised Messiah, he was compelled to rush towards him and and seeing him approach, the promised Messiah extended his hand offering greetings of peace. Malvi Sahib returned the greeting, took hold of his hand and accompanied him inside. And once inside, Malvi Sahib not only sat close to the promised Messiah but also began to declare his love and admiration for him just just by looking at his face. And being a scholar, naturally he raised many pertinent uh, questions relating to the promised Messiah's claim. This related to the death of Jesus and about his own commission. The promised Messiah replied, uh, quoting references from the Holy Quran, to which Maulvi Sahib said, certainly, and this is a, a quote from him, certainly the Holy Quran is with you. And the promised Messiah then responded, that if the uh, Holy Quran is with me, then whose side are you on, Maulvi Sahib? And to this, uh, um, uh, the Ulam uh, Nabi immediately replied that he sided the promised Messiah and wished to take the oath of initiation. Mm. 
And from that time, Hazrat Mawlid Ghulam Nabi became totally immersed in the love of the Promised Messiah, paying frequent visits of Qadi and wishing never to leave his, his sight. And this is an example of how certain people who are sincere at heart were attracted uh, to the uh, Promised Messiah just by, by looking at him. Mm. And it also happened in the lifetime of the Holy Prophet Sallallahu as well, that when, for example, some of the Jewish uh, tribes or people of the Jewish faith were very hostile to him, mm. and one of the leading uh, um, uh, scholars, uh, when the Holy Prophet, uh, peace be upon him, entered Medina and he saw him, he said, this is not a face that could be a, a face of a liar. Right. The, the, the very sight of an individual, for some people, is enough, enough. to, well, to we accept it. We see that in, uh, even today, some the real intelligence or people with fair-mindedness mm. will have great praises for the promise. I take Dr. Israr, for example, yes. the partner of the Jamaat, yes. but never spoke in in hatred of the promised mm. Messiah. Yeah. Same with Jamaat. Only in, at the end of his life, he started saying something yeah, yeah. because he was pressurized to do it. Okay, but, right. but he admired him admired greatly. Admired him, yeah, as, yeah. as, as, as does Javed Ghamidi, yes. who's another scholar of yes. our time in Pakistan, always singing praises of the promised Messiah. Mm. Might not agree with the belief. Yeah. That's fine. That's yeah. an argument. Just one last question before we close with yeah. it. Uh, this encounter with knowledgeable people and the acceptance was also found with non-Muslims as well. Mm. Any incidences you can uh, relate? Yes, so non-Muslims, you're talking about uh, people of uh, Hindu or Christian faith. We, we do know about uh, Mr. Reg, Mr. Reg, uh, Professor Reg, should mm. I say. He was a renowned English astronomer uh, and he took the trouble of... Uh, visiting the Promised Messiah. It was during the last weeks, a few weeks of the Promised Messiah's life. And the Promised Messiah met him, um, it is recorded on the 12th of May, 1908. Um, and uh, this is when uh, Professor uh, Reg raised a series of questions to which the Promised Messiah gave an enlightened uh, response or responses. And the professor parted on the 18th of May just a few days before the uh, Promised Messiah passed away. Uh, and his wish was to hold further sessions. And some of the con conversations of the professor with the Promised Messiah were recorded and preserved, and we can still find them today. Review uh, of Religions has a yes. record of those, yes. some of those as well. Uh, and so. dare I say, the Ahmadi Bulletin has also uh, run something it, uh, on it recently. <laughs> okay. But the crucial point is that uh, following these meetings with the Promised Messiah, uh, the professor, professor accepted Islam and remained a Muslim to the end. So in this way, engagement with the Promised Messiah was enough even for some learned scholars, provided they were sincere uh, to accept him. Indeed. Uh, if people were interested in looking at Professor Riggs' account, because this has all been recorded, mm -hmm. some very interesting discussions yes. about the space as well as astronomy the subjects, I think, right. are also discussed in there as well. Really? Uh, and the uh -huh. answers that the Promised Messiah gives on various subjects are, are quite uh, enlightening and okay. uh, thought-provoking as mm -hmm. well as uh, mm -hmm. spiritually enhancing. Is it in the recent edition of Review? Uh, I don't know, but you can get it online if you okay. type in Professor Ray, right. possibly, uh, Review of Religions, you, okay. you can get those articles. Uh, right. We'll be coming back uh, after the 11 o'clock news where uh, we'll be discussing with Sheikh Rahman uh, issues happening in Pakistan and also Daniel Kalam will be joining us in the Ask the Imam section. So stay tuned. Weekend World on Voice of Islam. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah wa barakatuhu. Uh, welcome back to the Weekend World show. This is Asan Ahmadi. 
Um, and co-hosting with me is Walid Ahmed. Uh, also joining us in this hour uh, is our young Imam, Daniel Kalun Saib. Assalamu alaikum, Daniel. We will look forward to your contribution, but any time during the show you wish to add anything, please do so. Um, Walid, uh, <laughs> the political, Pakistan political crisis will deepen its economic misery. This is by Julia Horowitz of the CNN. She writes, um, the political unrest that's engulfed Pakistan since former Pakistan Imran Khan was arrested earlier this week. This was an article written in May when he was arrested Imran Khan. Will complicate efforts to secure a financial lifeline from the International Monetary Fund and exacerbate uh, the country's economic crisis. Crisis, sorry. What does the Independent? What did they write yesterday? Because we are now current. This is what's happened in May. Mm-hmm. Imran Khan gets arrested. There's issues around Pakistan's stability. There were issues, uh, but yesterday, what did they say? Well, the independent said that Pakistan uh, Prime Minister Sharif says he will hand over power, paving way for uh, a general election. Pakistan Prime Minister Shabazz Sharif announced on Thursday that he will hand over power to a caretaker government on 14th August, setting the stage for general elections amid rising uncertainties over the vote. Yes, during an address in Islamabad, the Prime Minister said, I assured you that our government will end on 14th August and whenever elections happen, whether in October or November, the Election Commission of Pakistan will announce it. Mr. Sharif uh, of the Pakistan Muslim League was elected unopposed successor to Imran Khan's government after he led a coalition of opposition parties to overthrow his government through a parliamentary vote of no confidence in April 2022. So that is the background to the situation. Um, joining us this morning is Sheikh Rahman, a Pakistani residing in the UK, a financier and commentates and follows closely on the politics of his birth nation. Assalamu alaikum, Sheikh Rahman sahab. Peace be and blessings of Allah be upon you. Jee wa alaikum as thank you so much. No, no, uh, always when it comes to Pakistan, there's no better person to speak to, uh, as far as I can see, on our thank show. So thank you very much for joining us. Uh, Sheikh Rahman, uh, what is going on in Pakistan's political climate? I know they've had instabilities all for many s- decades now, but this seems to have escalated to such a crescendo that... It's almost becoming, uh, the world is looking at Pakistan almost like a banana republic. Um, well, unfortunately, yes, that, that may be true. We've had instability uh, for decades in, um, since the inception of Pakistan, uh, including, unfortunately, the very early passing away of the founder of the nation, uh, which, of course, created... Yes, I mean, there's a historical background to this, but I will not go into history. No. But I would like to comment on this um, piece that Walid Sub's just read. Mm. Um, I think it's totally void of facts. The fact is that there was no, um, there was no, op- there was no government, so to speak, which elected the present government and which passed a no-confidence motion in the assembly because the majority party were not present in the assembly, which is PTI, which is Imran Khan's party. So unfortunately, that vote of no confidence, in my view, carries absolutely no constitutional uh, value or or validity, I would say, 
um, in electing the present government. Would, would, uh, would the no confidence of vote have to include the, the, the party that uh, the, the no confidence is being put up against? Well, be included in the vote. I mean, in Britain, let's say, if yeah. if the Labour Party wanted a no-confidence vote on the Tories, yes. would they need the Tories to take part in that vote, or can they do so without them being present? That's the question. Well, the, the, that's a very valid question. Yeah. The fact is that you need a majority vote for no-confidence. Right. And if you do not allow the other party, who actually were not pre- not only not present in the Assembly... Mm. But what had had been removed from government, from, from a constitutionally elected government, mm. were actually removed by a soft coup. Um, very, very unfortunate for Pakistan, mm. because we were on a, on a course where uh, things had started to look up. We were obviously uh, going to be economically independent. Uh, we were fighting uh, for for corruption to be eliminated, and for these two major political parties who are who, who are dynastical dynasty politics, mm. frankly, uh, both the Sharifs and the Zardaris, who've been apart from the military, which is which has been ruling uh, the country for a better part of possibly three or more decades, mm-hmm. um, and then these two political parties uh, were, were frankly being eliminated from, from politics. Right. Um, and it's, it's very, very unfortunate that um, with the intervention of the military um, and perhaps the, the courts, I don't know if you recall, but the Supreme Court were open at 12 o'clock midnight um, if it came to a, um, if, it, if, if, the, if the government was challenged. Uh, sorry, if the army was challenged, in fact, for removing um, Imran Khan, mm. uh, it doesn't happen in a civilized society. No. Uh, it, and then following his removal, whatever is happening in Pakistan now, I think is a reflection which sadly we've not seen ever in the past. Yeah. We haven't seen in any other country, even if there's been a dictatorship or any sort of, um, uh, you know, corrupt rulers or whatever. We haven't seen that happen in the past. Now, in May, there was uh, some riots took place because what happened was that Imran Khan attended the courts. The courts uh, released him on bail. In fact, they dropped all the all the charges. All, were, all the were, charges were dropped, uh, released on bail, and then the military came in saying that they will charge him on military. Uh, uh, military courts. Military courts. Yeah. Where does that happen in the world? I mean, <laughs> it's strange. The military courts were set up in Pakistan at the time when we were fighting extremism and we were fighting uh, a particular um, in a particular area of Pakistan. We were fighting the terrorists mm-hmm. to be removed and the, the speedy justice. Because the military was involved, therefore the military courts were established under the constitution of Pakistan for trial of terrorists. Mm. Now, how does a political party become a terrorist? How, does, how do military courts start, start trying their own civilians? It doesn't happen anywhere in the world. And that's what's unfortunately happening. Mm. 
the intervention of the military has been a disaster for Pakistan. Um, the role of the military in Pakistan has not been the role uh, that a normal military should dictate military or armed forces should play in any country. Um, unfortunately, the military are the most powerful, uh, not just a political party, but also a very powerful economic force in Pakistan. Um, and over the years, that has been encouraged. Um, and I don't know if you recall, but Aisha Siddiqui wrote a book. Dr. Aisha Siddiqui wrote a book called Military Inc., mm. which is... Um, the military as an organization within Pakistan, I presume. Yes, it's a, it's a sad indictment on, on our armed forces. I mean, yes. of course, the armed forces have played a major role. Uh, we've had some very, very brilliant officers fight the 65 war and, and, and also similarly uh, to, to eliminate some of, the, uh, some of the terrorism that prevailed in Pakistan as a result of Zia's intervention. And again, that was military. Um, in Afghanistan, which, of course, has now led to a new uh, role of the um, the mullahs being used for uh, creating this havoc, this extremist havoc in Pakistan, which is, again, a sad indictment on the country. I mean, the mullahs don't get more than 3% of the votes in the country. Uh, but look at the way they create havoc. I mean, recently, there have been incidents which... Uh, you know, for example, they've desecrated mosques, they've, our mosques, they've yes. desecrated... Um, we'll, we'll, be coming, yeah, we'll be coming to that in the okay. second part of the discussion on, on sure. that. But just sticking with that, I mean, where the, where the military does its duties as a military yes. uh, is fine, but where it starts interfering with the policy is where the troubles uh, get started. I think we'll leave... You've yeah. got a question. Uh, Sheikh Haman, I mean, you, you seem to be very well versed in this. Um, I can understand the animosity of the Sharifs and the Zaris against Imran Khan, but what's the angle uh, as regards the military? Why are they hostile to, to Imran Khan? I, I think he, Imran Khan's the next challenge was to rein in the military and to put them where they should really be, 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 be this. The, the prime minister, the military should be subservient to the political leadership in the country. Hmm. And when I say subservient, I don't mean that they should be like, you know, lackeys of, of, the, of the prime minister or of the political party in power, but that they should be put in place in, in terms of their, their constitutional role. Hmm. So, so unfortunately, uh, I think the military generals did not like that. And, and as, you've, as we all know, the, the former chief army staff has in fact uh, fled the country. He does not, you know, he's, he's, he doesn't live in Pakistan anymore, um, as did many of his prede predecessors. Um, now, I don't understand why a military chief uh, should be a chief of army staff, of whether former or present, should really be allowed to interfere in politics, the ISI and the military intelligence as well, which is... Um, which is very unfortunate. I mean, their role should be to protect our borders. And if there is mm. insecurity within the country, we should have our security forces deal with it. Um, I think there was a recent very good uh, piece that I read which said that we are probably the heaviest 
security security led country in the world and yet there's no peace and security for the for the normal uh, normal citizen of pakistan so in your view what what do you think is the realistic uh, solution to this i think the realistic solution was and should be that we should bring back imran khan we should let the political process take its place we should have very strong uh, independent uh, institutions like uh, the national accountability bureau and so on and so forth who should and courts unfortunately even the judges are afraid for their own lives because they are threatened uh, for those to to be able to be able to be function within the constitutional limits of their own um, bounds and be honest to their to their purpose unfortunately honesty has gone out of the window justice has gone out of the window um there have been instances where um the judges have been allowed to make decisions uh, based on personal and political reasons rather than to follow the law in the country mm. do you think that uh, the step that has been taken by shabash sharif is it one in the in the right direction towards that end well this should have happened immediately when the when the new government was sworn in the constitution states that elections must be held within 90 days mm-hmm. they've oh. been in for more than a year now and um, i think they've been literally forced to to get this constitution um, uh, correctly done and look at these guys in government i mean these are guys who are actually criminals facing charges Mm. in courts you know for for money laundering for um, and various other things and 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 these are not these are not cases which are kind of like petty crimes these are serious serious money laundering and 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 uh, removing the wealth of the country outside of pakistan you 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 say they've been charged with these ch- charges etc for corruption etc Yeah. Uh, and you want to bring Imran Khan back in power but he himself is charged with 150 charges of yeah. corruption etc so how yeah. can that how can he be brought not back? even not even one of them and there have been many that he's been to courts and all of them have been dropped against him mm. not even one of them has been proved so far mm. in in courts and and they're all trumped up charges I mean 99% of them are trumped up. I'm sure there's 1% truth in in some of not him but perhaps his wife and perhaps the 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 other uh, network that was being used by by his wife and her friends. Possibly yes. And 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 I'm not defending Imran Khan. I'm saying that if there is if there are charges against him, mm-hmm. he should also be tried in courts but in a proper court of law. Right. not not with threats to his life Indeed. you know okay mm. what about the pti members they're being arrested left right and center exactly. uh, supporters of pti including women and celebrities arrested yeah. manhandled some of the women aggressively yeah. by authorities and politicians yeah. like mariam nawaz and mariam aurangzeb are publicly justifying the arrest of journalists who have spoken in favor of imran khan and yeah. to ban his name on media outlets is this what yeah. jinnah's pakistan was about never I think this was on this is very unfortunate as I said to you a little while ago what we are seeing in Pakistan today has never happened and I hope to god that the civil society 
rise up to the challenge and actually remove these. I hope these elections are free and fair um, if they do happen uh, without any military intervention. I hope they're free and fair. And as recently as I think a couple of days ago, Imran Khan has challenged even Nawaz Sharif that he should pick a cons- pick any constituency in Pakistan and fight an election against him of, of his choice. Not Imran Khan's choice, but of the opposition's choice. Mm. 13 political parties have joined hands against Imran Khan. I mean, that's a great victory from him, for Imran Khan that he's got all the corrupt politicians join hands together. And look what they've done to our country. Indeed. And uh, I think your, your, your passion and your love for your nation is clearly in those words that you just said. And you talked about... <coughs> You were talking about the clerics earlier, and uh, and, and then you were, you were just mentioned about that the civil uh, nation needs to rise up to this. But the problem we have is that the clerics have a hold on many of the uneducated, the majority of the Pakistani people, uh, and these clerics are creating havoc, and they are the ones who will stop that support for Imran Khan because... Uh, Imran Khan is not in favor of the way the clerics are behaving. Would that be a fair assessment? or well, I, I, well, first of all, I don't think there is a majority of them. They are a minority, but they're a disruptive minority. Right. And unfortunately, they come out on the streets. Nobody challenges them. The state authorities are, should be there to protect the civil liberties of the country, of property, of people's lives, and whatever. Unfortunately, the, the state authorities have used them in the past and still use them uh, for their own purposes. And and that is why, they, and this is a disruptive element, by the way. That's why they create disorder in the country. Mm. They, they're, let, they're let loose, uh, unfortunately, to create disruption in the country. And I'm afraid that even Imran Khan, during his tenure in government, was using them. So he's no saint when it comes to the use of the extremist element in the country. Mm. I think there, there's clear evidence that when, when he was first asked about the Amity the situation, we'll discuss that in a minute, uh, mm. he, he was certainly in favor of giving rights to us, and then suddenly he changed all that. Uh, certainly he was put under pressure by the clerics and, and others. Um, and talking of the Amity persecution, and we were talking about Jinnah's uh, vision, um, where Jinnah wanted every Pakistani should be free to practice his faith, worship in a place of worship freely. It appears the rights of Ahmadis in Pakistan do not fit that Jinnah's vision today. 11th of August, 1947, speech to the parliament. Yes, quite exactly. right. And, and today's Pakistan, and I'm afraid to say, Imran Khan is also guilty of this, uh, where the rights of Ahmadis have not been uh, given, and under Imran, many a persecution has taken place for Ahmadis. Yeah, well, not just, unfortunately, Ahmadis, but all minorities, Christians, Hindus, mm. everybody, except that he did do this Kartarpur corridor for the Sikhs to come and worship in Nankana Sahib. Mm. Um, other than that, his record of, or his government's record of protecting the minorities and protecting the rights of minorities has been poor. Right. Um, it has become worse now because obviously the, the government and the state authorities are using these clerics to create that disorder for them to remain in power. Um, and going forward, even if these elections are held, and I hope to God 
they're free and fair, um, which is which in my view is probably unlikely. But but then um, yes, I mean using them, using tactics like you know sending uh, armed personnel to some of Imran Khan's senior political leadership to their houses, harassing women, mothers and daughters and sisters in the house, is 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 a very very poor reflection. On, on a civil on a civilized society in in Pakistan, indeed, very poor reflection. Indeed, uh, we were talking about the Abdiya persecution. Uh, this is how one uh, and this information, this news was breaking out around the world in many news items. This is one example uh, as given by an Indian television station. Uh, let's hear what they said. To another piece of breaking input. Now, this is CNN News 18's exclusive news break where Ahamdiya Muslims under, are under radar in Pakistan's Punjab. Now, Ahamdiya Muslims are not allowed to do Qurbani and Eid ul Adha. Now, Punjab's police has launched a crackdown against the Ahamdiya community in Faisalabad, Gujranwala, and Gujarat. Ahamdiya families are charged under 298C now, uh, of blasphemy laws. TLP files a complaint against Ahamdiya Muslims in, uh, and according to Punjab police. Now, the crackdown against Ahamdiya Muslims uh, happened during the Eid phase. Now, Ahamdiya Muslims are not allowed to do Qurbani and Eid ul Adha. Uh, let's take a look at some of the reactions. Bibi Kadiani Nahin, Namaze, Eid Adha Karega, Yejo in Kibadat Gahoe, Unkeander, or Nahi Ye Apni Emaratoke under Ya Bahir Janroke, Qurbani Karenge, Kuke Ye. इमारतों के अंदर करते हैं तो इनकी औरतें भी इस जुर्म में मुलविस होंगी जो 298 बी और 298 सी में है और अगर ये बाहर करते हैं तो फिर भी इन पे 298 बी 298 सी लगेगी दिस वाज अ ग्रुप ऑफ क्लेरिक्स हु वर रिपोर्टिंग दैट अहमदीज इन फैसलाबाद एरिया विल नॉट बी परमिटेड टू परफॉर्म द ईद प्रेयर्स और डू द सैक्रिफाइस ऑफ द एनिमल्स आइदर इनसाइड द प्रेमिसेस और आउटसाइड and if women, because women take part, they will also be counted as taking part in the crime, and they too will be uh, uh, charged under the 298C uh, Act of Pakistan's laws. So this is the state of Pakistan today. Basically, a few few weeks ago, this was done. What do you make of the latest Pakistan references to the Amdiya situation? There, there were attacks on the Amdiya mosques in the past year as well, in particular. So very... Uh, the situation for Amadi seems to be um, quite uh, worrying. It is. It is worrying because um, this 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 recent spate of of persecution of uh, Ahmadi Muslims in Pakistan is extremely worrying. I mean, there's been there's been consistent persecution of Ahmadis in Pakistan in schools, in 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 their places of worship, in publications. Um, you know, and, and arrests of some senior, some senior Ahmadi Muslims, um, and then recently on the occasion of Eid al-Adha, um, the banning of or, or the calls to ban Ahmadis per, for performing the rites of Qurbani, uh, which are related to or animal sacrifice, which are actually related to a ritual uh, which follows the pilgrimage. Um, this is again, this is the first time. 
um, that this has happened in Pakistan. Mm. Um, and the state authorities, unfortunately, have been in the forefront and and been taken action being taken action against certain families in certain parts of Pakistan and it's not just in the Punjab but just all over Pakistan in fact this has happened and it's very very sad uh, it's a sad reflection again on some clerics using their their influence their uh, i would say their seriously that's not political influence it's basically their um, their power to come out on the streets and be and create havoc for the for the people over there, mm. and then they get afraid. People get afraid. They don't want disorder in the country, uh, and the state authorities then take action and and arrest Ahmadis for for for, for simply performing. A, I mean, there's no trademark on on the on the performance of sacrifice of animals no, even no. even non-muslims can do it exactly uh, so i don't see any reason why the why these uh, 298c's and whatever should be applied for anyone in the world uh, to mm. to sacrifice animals uh, is pakistan signed up to the united nations charter for human human rights yes they are and how do they justify carrying out these acts uh, uh, and what does the United Nations, for example? Well, unfortunately, the UN, I have a whole, um, I can actually spend hours on the United Nations. Mm. Um, I can only, it only suffices for me to say that, frankly, they are a, a dead organization. Mm. They have no power of implementation, of protection of rights of, of, of citizens of the world. Mm. Um, and especially of families in Pakistan. Yeah, and we, we know that uh, the same for the Palestinian people in Israel Absolutely. as well. Absolutely. Yeah. What about other nations uh, who support human rights? The United Kingdom is always speaking out against uh, treatment of uh, humans around the world. Uh, are, we, are, are the Ahmadis getting support from the international community who support uh, the I human think may, I think making speeches or writing a couple of letters is frankly no support. Um, unless there is a, a concrete action that the, especially the Western governments that, that actually allow uh, or have um, a, a certain amount of influence over the uh, state authorities or, mm. or, 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 or in defense of uh, human right abuses, uh, unless they take strict action against the country, yeah. um, I, I don't think it's frankly going to work. I mean, even even the United Kingdom has failed to, to accept Ahmadi refugees into Pakistan under the UN settlement scheme. Right. So, uh, yeah, I'm sorry to say, but, you know, just actions, actions speak louder than words. Yeah. So you can have loads of meetings, you can have resolutions passed in Parliament, you can have resolutions passed in the United Nations, but it's the implementation of those in action, yeah, which, those, those which, speeches and those uh, words are only water of a duck's back for nations correct. like Pakistan. That's it. Yeah. Uh, Sheikh Rahman Saab, thank you very much for uh, sharing your thoughts and views on the situation. And thank you. our prayers and thoughts for the people of Pakistan, particularly the people of uh, the Ahmadi the, the Muslim community in Pakistan who are having yes. to suffer severe yes. persecution. Uh, Absolutely. We, we, must, we must continue to do so. Amen. Thank you very Thank much. Thank you so much. Jazakallah. Thank you. Yeah. Right. Uh, oh, oh, I mean, the passion of uh, uh, Sheikh Rahman for his nation, for Pakistanis generally, it's, it's, it's 
clearly there. Mm. And and what we want to see in Pakistan is is a just country, a right yes. for everyone. That's what, yes. that's what a a progressive nation is, mm. isn't it? Mm. And mm. Uh, unfortunately, Pakistan seems to be going on a downward scale mm. with corruption at its core and suffering, suffering a great deal in in so many different respects. Indeed. And when you compare uh, the progress that is made by the other countries in sub in the subcontinent, it's Indeed. Uh, Indeed. Yeah, you can see how dismal the state of Pakistan is. is. Both Bangladesh and uh, India, yeah, absolutely, flying high. Flying yeah. high, yeah. Daniel, just one question, very quickly to you about the Qurbani incident, banning Ahmadis to do the Qurbani. Uh, is uh, Qurbani an essential part of Idul Azia for Muslims? It is for anyone who is. Uh, it is for and for anyone who is able to do so, um, who is able to afford it. Or in this case, uh, my understanding would be that if anyone's even legally allowed to do it, <laughs> because anyone being able to afford it financially mm. also equates to anyone being able to legally uh, be able to carry that out. Is it not the case that uh, it's compulsory for those on Hajj, uh, but for those outside of Hajj who are not performing Hajj, uh, it is uh, a token of good gesture of charity rather than being compulsory? That it is, yeah. It's just... It's just greatly encouraged for anyone. So for us sitting here in the UK, we obviously don't go and grab a goat and, and sacrifice it. We're not uh, generally at Hajj either during Eid al-Adha. Um, so for us, the best thing would be to, you know, um, contribute uh, financially so yeah. that meat can be distributed. So it's not it's not a fard, but it is, um, it should be done. Highly encouraged. Yeah, highly encouraged. It should be done. Any good deed. Yeah. Is encouraged as exactly. Well. Yeah, exactly. Right, uh, let's come to the next part of our uh, uh, segment of our show. Weekend World <coughs> Community News. Right, uh, we're going to play chapter 4, verse 4 of the Holy Quran. وَإِنْ خِفْتُمْ أَلَّا تُقْصِطُوا فِي الْيَتَامَى فَانْكِحُوا مَا طَابَ لَكُمْ مِنَ النِّسَاءِ مَثْنَى وَثُلَاثَ وَرُبَاعَ فَإِنْ خِفْتُمْ أَلَّا تَعْدِلُوا فَوَاحِدَةً أَوْ مَا مَلَكَتْ أَيْمَانُكُمْ ذَلِكَ أَدْنَى أَلَّا تَعُولُوا and if you fear that you will not be fair in dealing with the orphans, then marry a woman, uh, marry off women, as many as agreeable to you, two, three, or four. And if you fear that you will not deal with justly, then marry only one, or what your right hand possesses. This is the nearest way to avoid justice. The issue of slavery in relation to Islamic teaching is often used to criticize Islam, and something you'll find. Uh, that the social media particularly is you know, uh, full of uh, mm. you know, mm. these sort of uh, discussions taking yeah. place. And the use of uh, the example of slavery to paint Islam as a violent religion which oppresses people, this is what the intentions are. Yeah. In particular, the issues of female prisoners of war, who under the words, those whom the right hand possesses, which is very crucial in the Holy Quran, as one example we just played. Uh, and you know, th that right-hand possession is sometimes used by groups like Boko Haram, for example, who kidnap women, as we know, under that guide that they can capture women and keep them enslaved for their, mm. for their use. Uh, to untangle this, uh, we're going to ask some questions to Daniel to, to, to help us understand 
what this right hand possession means and, and what prisoners of war, the state situations, etc. And, and the rights of women generally in all of that. Uh, so, uh, again, Daniel, welcome to the show as always. Um, can't female prisoners of war be taken in Islam? That's the first question that's got to be asked. That's the first question, and it's the most loaded question, but it uh, needs to be clarified because we need to look at the original source of guidance for Muslims, um, the primary source of guidance for Muslims, which is obviously obviously the Holy Quran. Mm-hmm. Uh, in it, we are told in Surah Al-Anfal, which is chapter 8, verse 68, A'udhu Billahi Min Shaitan Ar-Rajim, Ma kana li nabiyin an yakuna lahu asra hatta yuthkhina fil arath. It does not behove a prophet that he should have captives until he engages in regular fighting in the land. From this verse and other verses of the Holy Quran, what we understand is that with regards to taking captives, um, this pretty much clarifies that Muslims aren't allowed to go out and just start taking captives no. at will. Right? They're not allowed to start... Uh, only when you're in a state of war, of war, that captives are permitted. Yes. Outside of that state, that means before or after. Yeah. There is no permission to have captives. Exactly, and that too, that war has to be a religious war. That war has to be fought against you, for the sake of eradicating your faith or turning you away from Islam. Mm-hmm. Only under such circumstances can Muslims take captives in captive women, bond women, and slaves mm. and stuff. Mm. In a political war, that's not allowed. So, um, if those captives are taken, are you allowed to take women as captives? Yes, and the reason for that is that um, obviously there are there, there's a range of rights that you owe to any captives. They can be male, female, um, but the fact is that the reason that women um, were being taken captive in the early days of Islam, especially during the time of the Prophet, peace be upon him, and his companions, is uh, it's in light, it's in line with another verse of the Holy Quran, which is, The recompense of an injury is an injury the like thereof. That's Surah Shura, chapter 42, verse 41. And what that verse tells us is that um, when an evil is done to you, um, or when an injury is done to you, then that injury can be, um, it can be, you know, reciprocated. is reciprocated to the enemy, right? And now we're talking about a war that's been waged against you, no. right? Especially only, only under that circumstance. Under that circumstance, yeah. exactly. Especially in those days, in, in that era, um, the Arab custom of war, the wartime laws, mm. were such that they would take women as prisoners of war. Okay. And they would make them their wives or their concubines and and whatnot. Okay. So in accordance with that, with this Quranic teaching, Muslim men eventually, at first they showed a lot of patience and they wouldn't take their the um, disbelievers, pri- uh, women who were caught as prisoners of war, as their concubines. Yeah. Um, but because it was being done to the Muslim women so much, and they were being put through such um, torture and difficulty, and obviously. That the physical torture is obviously for the woman who's been caught, but then the mental torture is for the man whose mm-hmm. wife or sister or mother or daughter has been caught, yes. right? Yes. So the Muslim men were going through a great mental torture there. Mm-hmm. So God Almighty allowed Muslim men at the time to take uh, disbelieving women 
captive and only those this also has to be clarified only those who were actively engaged in warfare who were on the battlefield right. helping the disbelieving army or fighting alongside the disbelieving army only those women were allowed to be captured as prisoners of war um ordinary citizens were not allowed to be captured that 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 makes sense i would have thought and then that that therefore when a battle is being fought those engaged <coughs> in, the, in the battle were were allowed to be captured mm. um there there was a an incident which exemplifies this that uh during hazrat umar's time uh one uh prisoner of war complained that his daughter had been captured and she's been separated mm. and as a result of that hazrat umar rizwanho uh put out an ordinance that uh, relatives who are captured should be kept together and not separated so as to yep. diminish or or the brewing up of hatred it actually diminished that Absolutely. and as a result of that treatment many prisoners eventually uh, converted and became muslims because they saw a better way of dealing with people absolutely even um bond women in in general uh women who are under servitude uh with regards to them there's a teaching of the holy prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam and it's mentioned in bukhari that those of you who educate a bond woman Mm-hmm. and then free her and then marry her will have a great reward right. um and obviously you have to marry her with her consent because the nikah is done with the consent once the woman has been freed especially which brings us to another very good question that you just raised there's about marrying uh prisoners of war another criticism made against islam are uh, muslims allowed to marry uh prisoners of war because they've captured them because the right hand possession what does that actually mean yeah. is it mean that whatever you've captured becomes your possession or is there some guidelines to that or rules to that yeah so there's two we need to make a distinction between two types of bond women there's bond women who are captured through war and bond women who are already under servitude you know pre islamic in the era of ignorance and right. everything and who right. are still in that um cycle right so those type of w- women who weren't captured through warfare for them the teaching is clear cut that in order to marry her you have to first educate her and then free her and then with her consent marry her and that's pretty much uh, a blanket statement so she for has that one you have to free her number one you have to educate her educate, then free her, free her and then and then you can marry her then marry her and with her consent only with her consent so if she refuses you are not allowed you know allowed exactly because she's a free woman um so she'd have mm-hmm. a wali she'd have a guardian <coughs> who would be there to protect her rights if she mm. were to refuse that marriage proposal Does that, does that clarify upon well, no, what's the difference between what your right hand possesses and a wife yes so that's also that's that that's a deep explanation let me just first quickly finish up with a nikah okay. yes. aspect yes. so the prisoners of war those women those bond women who have come through warfare um the nikah with them we have to remember nikah is an honor bestowed upon a man and a woman right now let's go back to the whole Arab society wartime laws and customs at the time catching a prisoner of war and keeping them in your house or whatever and using them as your servants is obviously not the biggest honor on being bestowed upon them right mm. it's in a in a way it's a form of um reconciliation or uh, not reconciliation sorry revenge right mm. because they the enemy is doing that to your people as well right so if you are doing that to your prisoners of war then why would you honor them with a nikah right you wouldn't honor them with a nikah mm. but that doesn't mean that if you were to 
um, engage in relations with women, those concubines, that those are illegal or haram. They're not, because you would still be considered married in a way. And this is what the khulafa of, um, of our community have actually written as well, that you'd consider to be married to that woman automatically when she comes under your servitude, when she's um, your concubine, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so you are allowed to um, have relations with her, but it just wouldn't be announced as a nikah or in the form of a nikah. You'd still be married and you'd still be able to um, perform relations with her because um, in that case, she is, you know, under your uh, servitude. In the absence of a nikah. In so absence these of are relations being conducted in the absence of a nikah, yes. which were normally conducted uh, after nikah. Yes, exactly. And that brings me to your question, because we're talking about um, what your right hands possess. It's mentioned countless times in the Holy Quran. Um, it's mentioned, for example, in Surah Al-Mu'minun, <coughs> in verse 7, إِلَّا عَلَىٰ أَزْوَاجِهِمْ أَوْمَا مَلَكَتْ أَيْمَانُهُمْ Except for those who are their wives and what their right hand possesses. So the distinction I've made between um, wives and outside those women who are outside of the nikah is from the Quran, because the Quran is making that distinction as well. Mm-hmm. It's saying, except for the wives and what the right hand possesses. So obviously there's a clear distinction, right? Why is there a clear distinction? Well, the fact is that the Quran allows us to marry as the verse that was played at the beginning of this segment um, testifies. The Quran allows men to marry up to four times, right? But then it also mentions um, also what your right hand possesses, right? So the natural question arises, okay, so say a man has three concubines and he has one um, proper wife, right? Through nikah. So that's already four women, right? So he's not allowed to marry three more times, is he? But yes, he is, right? That's what the Quran is saying, that except for your wives, so those official wives through the nikah, um, who have been honoured with the nikah with you, you're allowed to have up to four. And then, whatever your right hand possesses mm-hmm. after that, you are still allowed to um, engage in um, sexual relations with them um, without a formal nikah, because you would be considered married, but outside of those four marriages. What about the issue of consent? So there's no consent yeah. in the absence of a nikah? Yeah, so the issue of consent goes back to that original point again. The only bond women who are under you, who you can have relations with without consent, are those women who came to the battlefield to fight and eradicate you and your religion. So they came to take away your freedom, right? They t- they came to turn, turn you away from Islam. So because they came, along with their men and warriors, to take away your freedom um, in a religious war, because of that, once you have captured them, their freedom is all automatically nullified. They are no longer free to choose what they want to do or consent or whatnot. Yes, they can, if the master allows it, and he should allow it, as the Quran test- testifies, they can try to buy their freedom through manumission, muqasabat, which is mentioned in the Holy Quran, where they work, um, they agree upon a, a, a fund, a, a certain number of money um, to buy their freedom, so they start working and then they start paying their master back mm. for their freedom. If they're able to do that, yes, that's fine. If you? someone claims, if one of the warriors from the enemy nation comes and claims the woman and says, I'll pay you the ransom, that's fine. Mm-hmm. Uh, you should give it, give her back, right? But if no one claims her and she doesn't um, want to go through with Mkatsabat, then she's, you know, she's mm-hmm. the owners, basically. But do you understand that this kind of uh, situation can lead to critics accusing uh, Islam of legitimizing rape? 
I understand that, but then again, we have to, we just have to look at the context. Like I mentioned, the context that the fact is that those women were coming, uh, those women and men were coming to take away the freedom of the Muslims. Mm. So their freedom, they had given up their freedom already by just coming onto the battlefield. Um, because if they had won, mm-hmm. they would have taken away the freedom of the Muslim men and women. And again, going back to that verse, that that whatever they came to do, you know, the Muslims were able to do, with the exception of doing anything which was specifically disallowed by the Quran, for example, mutilation of corpses. So the Muslims were not allowed to um, mutilate retaliate, the corpses, okay. yeah, retaliate okay. in that sense. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. What about... Uh, the term right-hand possession, what does that actually mean? So that actually literally means, um, um, it literally means the bondwomen that you have, um, you know. So everything that we've discussed right now, the, the bondwomen are those who come through religious warfare, who had come to eradicate your um, religion and who had actively engaged in war. Mm-hmm. Those women um, who are captured as prisoners of war, those are what your right hand possesses. Okay. So when groups like Boko Haram go and invade villages, uh, they classify that as an act of war, mm. uh, although it's instigated by them, but when yeah. they capture the women, which they do, they use them for their self-desires. Uh, is that uh, against the spirit of Islamic teaching? That's not just against the spirit, it's completely haram, because the fact is that you use the keyword that they instigate the war, so Boko Haram themselves instigate warfare, right? And their warfare is usually um, based on a political uh, ideology and agenda, right? It's not because of religion, and it's not. They're not fighting to defend themselves because their faith or their iman or their uh, religion is in danger. Mm-hmm. Islam is not in danger of being eradicated in this um, era, and that's why at the beginning I mentioned that um, we have to look at the Arab customs at the time, right? This was an injunction which was allowed at the time. It's no longer allowed, um, so Muslims can no longer go out and claim bondwomen and concubines. One could argue. Putting aside the Arab culture of the time, could Islam not have said not to have this culture and ban that culture at the time rather than giving a provision within that culture to do this? Yes, so the fact is that that culture was banned um, gradually. So just like with slavery, we have the example that Islam, slavery is bad and everyone knows that. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's not encouraging Islam whatsoever. In in fact, Islam encourages you to free slaves. But uh, as the Quran mentions, right, freeing a slave. Right, but the fact is that if if we had done it immediately, just like, for example, Abraham Lincoln and his um, American uh, government had done in the Civil War of America, um, they had let they had let go of slaves altogether in in just an instant. Right. Mm. The problem was that the slaves they weren't educated, they weren't trained to go and lead successful. They didn't have homes. They didn't have a job. Exactly. Exactly. And they couldn't. Um, you know. Uh, they couldn't provide for their families in a way. And we see the knock-on effects of that even to this day with African-American communities, in mm-hmm. entire ghettos in America, which unfortunately are struggling from that generational um, damage, right, of being just first being enslaved and then just being let go of slavery straight away, right? So that's why Islam encouraged letting go of slaves, but through Mukats, but through manumission, you educate, and bond women as well, you educate them, um, you free them, right? And then they can do what they want or you let them work and earn for their freedom 
right? And in that way, you're creating beneficial members of society who are able to contribute to society and who are able to survive. That's the most important part. They're able to survive in society. So you have to wean them out of a system which is against them. Exactly. To wean them out of it by creating steps rather than instant. Exactly. And in the same way, this whole system of having um, bond women and concubines was weaned out slowly and steadily because those Arabs eventually became Muslims. Those Arabs stopped um, and other enemies as well. They stopped committing that atrocity of taking Muslim women and using them for their own pleasures and everything um, because of the fact that, you know, they realized, okay, it can be done to us as well. It's a bad thing and we should stop. And they stopped, mm. right? And that's why now the Promised Messiah, um, the founder of the Ahmadiyya movement, um, peace be upon him, has has written exhaustively on this topic and he's pretty much said exactly this, that it was allowed at the time um, and for all the reasons that I mentioned earlier, that's why it was allowed. But now it's actually disallowed because of the fact that, one, there's no war to eradicate Islam completely. Mm. Mm. Islam is because pretty well established. Because we are outside the realms of a jihad or a war. Yeah. So therefore those things don't apply because we are outside those realms of war. Exactly. And number two, because those um, enemy nations, they don't actually uh, commit that atrocity anymore. So we can't, you okay. know, mm. retaliate. Right. A lot can be discussed on this. Well, yes. Anything from you? No, no. So, so in the current uh, uh, times when... Rape as a weapon of war is condemned by all nations, yes. and it can be uh, nations can be brought to account for that uh, in the uh, International Criminal Court. Would you say that uh, for that reason uh, there'll be no chance of another uh, nation legitimately or another body legit- legitimately use uh, prisoners in the way that uh, has been described, and therefore uh, Islam would not also uh, condone that practice? Like I said, it would have to be a religious war against Islam, against Muslims, for that whole practice to be, uh, for Muslims to be able to retaliate in the same manner. And as mentioned, those religious wars have ended with the advent of the Messiah. So those religious wars wouldn't happen. In a political war, if that's what's happening, which has obviously happened in Iraq and Afghanistan, where the captives and the women have been treated, uh, mistreated, um, the Muslims can't retaliate because that's not, that's not a religious war. That's not a religion. Uh, that's not a war on Islam. That's just a political mm-hmm. war. I think we'll have to leave it here. Apologies oh. because we have got Shahid waiting, okay. and time is running out. But I, I can see where we are. There's a lot more to discuss on this topic, and maybe we need to expand. This we can come back to it next time. Indeed, inshallah. indeed. Inshallah. Right. Let's get to the sports review. Weekend world sports review. <clears throat> Assalamualaikum, Shahid. Welcome back to uh, the lovely, beautiful weather of Britain. I think you're always Indeed. abroad nowadays, but uh, all doing good causes and doing your marathon runs, mashallah. Uh, Shad, the test series, I've been, uh, I presume you've been watching that and following it. Quite an intriguing test series. Uh, quite close margins. Could Anyone could have won any of the, ser- any of the test matches so far. Indeed. Uh, you're absolutely right. I think it's been a very, very competitive uh, three matches so far. And like I said, it could have gone either way. Even the first two test matches, Australia and the N1. So, and with that third one, which they did in England, so it does put it on a knife edge now with two matches to go. Mm. Even the third one, it looked like Australia was going to win that, but uh, Waleed thinks that it was all the way Australia. <laughs> England, <laughs> but, all the way England. But the, but the, England. the, the, the pitch is played an important part, and Headingley, as we know, what it does. But the most important part of Headingley was the base to stumping. Uh, sportsman's spirit came in into all that discussion. 
your views on that particular issue? Well, uh, yeah, you mentioned Headingley, but this was uh, of all the places at Lords. The actual controversy was at Lords, oh, sorry. and of all sorry, the places, course, yeah, course, yes. in these so-called uh, spirit, the spirit of cricket, and came into being, and so forth, and where they have an annual actual lecture issued on Cowdery Memorial on yeah. that particular uh, subject. But anyway, I think that I think was, from my point of view, it was blown out of all proportion. To be honest with you, mm. and I think Australia did play within the rules. And at the end of the day, I think it was uh, a lot of people did mention, even the top people in the pundits, pundits in the English cricket mentioned that it was dozy cricket by the England wicketkeeper. I think there was no doubt about that. Mm. And he paid a heavy penalty for it at such a time, and they could actually have won that match. So in, in the end, I think it was fair as far as it's concerned. But whether or not cricket. It was overlooked is something that I think the, the discussion still goes on even to this day. Even some of the matches I played recently, and it said make, made a mockery of the fact that uh, Bairstow was at fault. It was. I mean, it was clearly Bairstow's fault, and, and no one else. And, and, and the top sportsmen have certainly been saying that the, the English batsmen have all said it's Bairstow's fault for being out. Uh, and no, no question. But I mean, it was a bit rich coming that about talking about sportsmen. We 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 had the Bodyline series, Absolutely. which people have mentioned. We had the Stuart Broad uh, nick to the slips uh, against Australia <laughs> back in 2013, and then I was also watching um, uh, an incident with Sunil Gavaskar and John Snow, where John Snow ran into Gavaskar, pushed him to the side. And I was listening right. to the commentary at the time, Ted Dexter saying, well, Gavaska was in the line of the ball, right? Oh, yeah, 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 <laughs> and the yeah, fault yeah. was clearly John Snow. So it just shows yeah. you how people can change their sportsman spirit, in quotations, uh, when yeah. they, they bring it in when it suits them so, and not suit when it doesn't suit them. Absolutely. Hypocrisy Absolutely. of the highest order. What do you make Indeed. of England's uh, baseball approach? Is that something that is winning well, them uh, games or is uh, that debatable? I, well, I think it's debatable in a sense, but one thing that it has been mentioned is the fine line between entertainment and winning. Mm. And I think this is where it is coming down to the fact that these matches have been, I think, they're probably the best as far as entertainment is concerned. Some people, somebody even like myself, who doesn't follow test cricket to that extent, these matches, every ball and so forth, has been really with mm. some meaning. Mm. So I think it has brought in the entertainment factor. But at the end of the day, winning is also a, a must in the sense that that is the whole idea of test cricket. It's not a matter of entertainment. And uh, once that can bring it? the crowds in and so forth, yeah. that's all very well. But the, the way that Ben Stokes uh, declared in the first innings at, in the first test match and things like that would never have been thought of. Uh, even in the last, last few years, never mind before. But baseball has brought entertainment. Let's not forget that. But whether or not this goes on, they've actually proved it in other countries as well, in Pakistan, for instance, as well, that when they went over and whitewashed them. Mm. So it's not just the fact that it's entertainment, it's also the fact that they are winning games. And uh, I am all for it, to be honest with you, that this cricket is there. Mm-hmm. And But like some people have mentioned, people like the pundits like Boycott, saying that test cricket is something different. And they should learn the fact that this is uh, test cricket, not just entertainment. So there's a fine line in the end, but it for me... It, it is a fine line yeah. because uh, Test cricket is losing number of supporters in terms of supporters and, and, and T20, which is where baseball comes from, basically, from entertainment, is, is gaining is gaining supporters. I mean, the the, the declaration in the first one, many will argue that a lot of teams will learn from there and not, not declare such a low score. Uh, but at yeah. the same time, the last test was one on playing 
the way Test series is played. You know, uh, had to be played. Absolutely. Had to be played, and, and that's what brought England their victory. Um, yeah, yeah. No, thank you very much, and we look forward to the other two matches. Uh, the one starts the fourth one on the nineteenth, and the fifth one on the twenty seventh. Fascinating series. Uh, just yeah. very quickly with the tennis, uh, some lovely tennis being played. Um, oh, yeah. Yesterday, Ons Jabeur unfortunately was unable to bring Africa's first Wimbledon title. Uh, Makete Wondarusova won it and deservedly at that. What do you make of today's uh, Novak well, Djokovic is- 36 and Carlos Alcaraz 20 old out with the old in with the new? Indeed, I think. Well, this is the next generation, the highest profile players, and the most anticipated of the final that everybody was waiting for, and it has come to being. And not far from London Mosque, obviously, Puzzle Mosque, and the venue Wimbledon is something everybody wants to emulate to play in this and to play in a game like this, which is the most, as you say, anticipated of all the tournament, of all the matches that have been played, is something really grand. And uh, I think, like has been said, that whether or not um, uh, the, uh, Carlos can actually further delay the prospective uh, successor as himself uh, is yet to be seen. But Djokovic is playing at his best even at the age of 35. And I think he would want to continue that success that he has had at Wimbledon going in for the fifth consecutive time, which is something unheard of. Oh, it has been done only by two people, actually, by uh, Don Budge and Rod Laver, which is what he's trying to do. Let's see how he gets on. And will that make him the greatest player if he does it? Well, uh, in the modern era, this probably he's one, well, I wouldn't say one of the greatest, but among the two, top three, perhaps. And I think that the, the fact that he does it on every surface also is a factor that has to be taken into consideration. Mm. Uh, but as I said, at, at 35, to be doing this century, he'll be the oldest player if he does win it. Uh, so I think it's much wanted uh, that the, the young pretender will want to overcome that today. Indeed. Uh, Shahid's time is up. Thank you very much. Uh, thank you to thank our you. contributors, Daniel Garlon, Sheikh Rahman, Dr. Freed, and Shahid, as always. Uh, Please join us in two weeks' time at the Jalsa Salana of the United Kingdom. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.